You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Look around, and it's not hard to see that the rule of law is declining in lots of places, including in countries where it was once strong. We look at a global league table finding where the law is under attack and one region where it's on the up. And whatever the sport, there's a team or two that almost everyone loves to hate. We look at where that widespread disdain comes from, and it's not just as simple as resenting the sides that keep on winning. But first... This weekend, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, there was dancing in the streets as representatives of 198 countries gathered for COP27. Distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to declare open the 27th session of the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The UN's annual climate meetings started as a time to figure out how to prevent climate change. These days, it's increasingly about limiting and dealing with the change that the world has already bought and paid for. Keywords like mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage. Alok Sharma is a British member of parliament who presided over last year's COP26 in Glasgow. As he handed over to Egypt yesterday, he mentioned a goal that's become totemic since the Paris Agreement of 2015, 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. Friends, we are not currently on a pathway that keeps 1.5 in reach. And whilst I do understand that leaders around the world have faced competing priorities this year, we must be clear, as challenging as our current moment is, inaction is myopic and can only defer climate catastrophe. At Paris, the phrasing was about limiting warming to well below 2 degrees and to pursue efforts to keep it nearer to 1.5. It's time to think again about that hopeful lower number. Last year's summit, COP26, which was hosted by the British government, had a very strong mantra, which was keep 1.5 alive. Katrin Bregg is The Economist's environment editor. It was seen as the last chance to really ramp up policies and targets enough to not see that goal escape into the rearview mirror. But as we go into COP27, the game is up now. So the mantra of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial temperatures, that was the mantra. And now you're saying it's not, the game is up. What do you mean? 
We will overshoot 1.5 degrees of warming. That target is now dead. It is not on life support. It is dead. That lower target of 1.5, frankly, was a stretch even in Paris back in 2015. I think if you spoke to climate modelers at the time, they were fairly willing to say there's very few realistic pathways that take you to 1.5. It might be physically possible. But when you put that into a human context, emissions, whilst they're still rising today, cannot come down by half before the end of this decade. It's just not realistic. We've, in the meantime, had seven years of increased emissions, bar the COVID blip. This mantra of keeping 1.5 alive, I think, frankly, has been a bit of a lie. So the fact that 1.5 is dead. It's something that everybody's been saying and been willing to say privately for a very long time. But you'd be amazed at how difficult it is to get powerful people to put that on the record. Why is that? Why not face up to that fact? It it just raises the alarm further, doesn't it? I guess it could be motivating. But on the other hand, admitting that a target has been missed can be incredibly demotivating. The reason that that's in there in the first place is because when developing nations showed up in Paris, they were acutely aware of the fact that more warming than 1.5 degrees, so so starting to reach towards two, was a death warrant for many nations, particularly nations whose entire land mass is very low-lying and is basically going to be swamped out by sea level rise. And so those countries effectively argued, we can't sign an agreement which signs us into inexistence. And so admitting that 1.5 is dead has very real consequences for those countries and essential consequences for how you tackle decisions in the coming decades. So if we're saying that 1.5 is now unavoidable, what, what world then does, does that promise? Overshooting the 1.5 degree target means greater and worse climate impacts. Sea level rises will be greater with more than 1.5 degrees of warming. Agricultural productivity goes down. Extreme weather events become more extreme. Some of them become more frequent. In a two degrees world compared to a one and a half degrees world, you've got roughly 420 million additional people who will be exposed to record heat at some point every year. You have millions more people whose livelihoods are wiped away by higher seas. The Arctic looks radically different and is, in fact, according to the models, ice-free once a decade as opposed to once a century with 1.5. So it is a more dangerous, a more erratic world at two degrees compared to 1.5. So what's your view on what's going to happen at this COP? Yeah, so... There are big cops and small cops, and COP26 was a big cop in the sense that it was the fifth since the Paris Agreement, and there were certain deadlines and things that needed to be delivered at that summit. COP27 is a sort of intermediate cop or small cop. There's three things that are going to be happening at this COP. One is a discussion of adaptation. People now need to be planning for far more than 1.5 degrees of adaptation or risk wasting the money that they're putting into infrastructure plans. Two is the issue on loss and damage. So this is the idea of compensating poor countries for the 
losses and damages that they are already suffering as a result of climate change. The very damaging floods in Pakistan earlier this year are a prime example of that. Outside that, there's also a much more positive and more encouraging movement in the business community and the finance community, where there's a lot of activity on the ground that maybe isn't being accounted for in the same way as public policy at the minute. And although none of that is enough for the 1.5 degree target, a lot of it is contributing to emissions reductions worldwide. And so the first week of COP is, I think, going to see a lot more of that kind of activity. But the matters of adaptation, of loss and damage, compensation and so on, that's all still second order stuff. In this world where we know that 1.5 is going to be passed, what about that number that is still a fixation? How to deal with the warming that's driving all of this? I don't actually think we should be focusing on the number anymore. As the mantra, keep 1.5 alive, has begun just to fade, there's a new mantra that's taking its place. And I think it is perhaps not quite so catchy, but very important. And that is that every fraction of a degree matters. So this is the idea that the impacts of climate change at 1.7 will be lesser than the impacts of climate change at 1.8. And the impacts at 1.6 will be better still than the impacts at 1.7 and so on. On the one hand, it means accelerate mitigation efforts, ramp those up as fast as you can because you can decrease the projections for where temperatures will eventually stabilize. That's obviously front and center of priorities right now. And then on the other hand, it also means that once temperatures have stabilized, there is an opportunity to then possibly turn the thermostat back down. And this involves negative emissions. You can do that through technology, big fans that suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and stuff it underground. And of course, you can do it by just relying on good old trees and enhancing ecosystem processes for removing carbon dioxide. I think we're now also going to see an increased and hopefully more honest conversation around a much more contentious technology, and that is solar geoengineering. Our understanding of how you would deploy a solar sunshade that would bounce the sun's energy back out into space before it had a chance to warm the planet is really quite poor. And our understanding of the impacts of doing that is poor still, and our grasp on how you would govern it, who would control that, is basically non-existent. And so I and the paper are not calling for geoengineering, but we really need to start taking a hard and honest look at that issue as well. So even more than usual, we're expecting this COP to be a, a contentious one, a difficult one. How effective, though, do you think it's going to be? The next two weeks are going to bring many long hours of talks and negotiations and probably a huge amount of tedious UN detail, as well as hopefully some very interesting and exciting business deals being announced. But ultimately, all of that is part of the process. What we're calling for at the minute is just a more honest conversation about where we stand and what lies ahead, because that can only lead to better planning and better investments. Katrine, thank you very much for your time. Jason, thank you. Economist Podcasts will be taking an even deeper dive into COP27 on our sister show, Babbage. 
On tomorrow's episode, Katrine and our global energy and climate innovation editor, Vijay Vaithiswaran, will be discussing the topic at the forefront of the conference, adaptation. Over the next three weeks, the Babbage team will be dissecting different challenges within climate change, asking how and whether COP27 is rising to meet them. Look for Babbage wherever you found this podcast, and be sure to hit subscribe. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. In too many places around the world, the rule of law is waning. Governments aren't accountable, courts aren't independent, and freedoms aren't safeguarded. In theocracies such as Afghanistan and Iran, clerics and ideologues, not civil laws, determine what women are permitted to wear. In countries ranging from Myanmar to Sudan, military juntas rule with impunity. In other places, notably Russia, democratic guardrails that do exist are fast being whittled away. A new report aims to work out how different countries compare when it comes to how much citizens are protected by their laws. The news is pretty bad, but not entirely. The World Justice Project is this charity based in Washington that studies rule of law in 140 different countries and ranks them across a variety of indicators, which includes things like constraints on government, things like fundamental rights, like free speech and freedom of assembly. Hamza Jalani writes about foreign affairs for The Economist. And they give each country a score, and their most recent report shows that for a fifth year in a row, there's been a decline in the rule of law in a majority of countries in the world. And the world is generally less free today than it was last year. And what is it that's driving the trend? There's a lot of different trends within the countries, but there's a few big things that we can look at. The first thing is that 2021 and 2022 were good years for coup plotters and insurgents and pretty bad years for everyone else. The country of Haiti is under a state of emergency tonight after President Jovenel Moise was assassinated early this morning. Outside the president's private residence and the scene of the crime lay bullet casings. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport, desperate to get on planes and leave the country at any cost. In Afghanistan, Haiti, Sudan, Myanmar, juntas or warlords or insurgents like the Taliban ultimately were able to topple governments, assassinate leaders, and generally cause havoc and control of the country. And we've seen in those countries the starkest declines in the rule of law. And there's a few other trends that are leading the decline in rule of law on top of that. There's a tail end of the COVID-19 pandemic where a lot of restrictions were put in place by countries. And most countries generally lifted them, but some countries have kind of used the new powers they had from COVID to continue restrictions on civil liberties. We're seeing this in places like Egypt, for example. 
And there's economic headwinds, which are making people pretty anxious about the economic future. And this is also another reason that governments oftentimes take to clamp down on people's liberties if there's a lot of protests on the street, for example, which is something we've seen in places like Russia. So where did Russia land in list this year? So Russia's ranking has really tumbled this year. They were originally in the 80s, and now they're at 107th place, which is basically a sign that the war that Putin has launched in Ukraine, which a lot of people have been saying is a war that is an attack on Western liberal democracy, is also a war that he's waging on his own people. I mean, he's really clamped down on protests against the war, and he's jailed a lot of his major critics, people like Alexei Navalny, and has generally been restricting press freedom and a lot of other bad stuff to really consolidate his rule. But it's interesting because there's actually a bit of good news in the areas just on Putin's doorstep that I think probably make him a bit anxious. What do you mean by that? So one of the things that stands out in the report that the World Justice Project put out is that the countries that directly hug Russia, so countries like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, not countries that we typically associate with having strong democratic institutions by any stretch of the imagination, have seen actually marked increases in their rule of law score in the last year and as part of a general trend since 2015. So Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan are still really repressive autocracies, but those countries have instituted a pretty interesting set of reforms that have improved their rule of law score. Kazakhstan now has the direct election of rural mayors. And then there's Uzbekistan, which was really starting at rock bottom, but they did just end forced labor and have introduced a sort of slate of other reforms that are ever so slightly making it a more free country. And it was once one of the most repressive countries in the world. So these are all generally good bright spots that we should be pretty happy about. And there's another bright spot also on Putin's doorstep. Eastern European countries like Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia that used to be part of the Soviet Union that are now part of the EU and actually have some of the strongest rule of law scores in the entire world. And then there's the EU aspiring countries like Kosovo, Moldova, and Ukraine. So why is it you think that those Eastern European countries are doing so much better? I think the EU actually deserves some credit here. The EU requires its members, both those that are already members of the EU and those that are applying to join the EU, to hew to the rule of law. And by this, they really mean that these countries should have an earnest effort to have anti-corruption and that the countries take steps to have an independent judiciary. And the carrot of membership is a huge influence for countries like Moldova, Ukraine, and Kosovo to really get their house in order. But as regards what the EU demands of its members and aspiring members, there is a counter-narrative here in that the rule of law seems to be something that member states such as Hungary and, and Poland in particular are really picking at. Yeah, this is true. And this is sort of one of the sad stories within the EU for the last few years that Poland and Hungary feel empowered to take shots at the judicial independence or anti-corruption. But what we're seeing is that the EU is not being a completely silent bystander from this anymore. And what's been pretty interesting is Poland, a country where it's ruling and somewhat ironically named Law and Justice Party, has been trying to create this disciplinary committee for its judges that would essentially force the judges to need to be more in favor of the party line, which is a huge violation of judicial independence. 
and has been one of the leading reasons why Poland's rule of law score has been generally declining over the last half decade. What we saw, though, if we look a bit closer into Poland, is that the EU is actually having some positive influence here. So the EU found this relatively novel tool in its pandemic support money, which is this tranche of billions of dollars of loans and grants that it can give its member states to help them recover from COVID and stabilize their economies. And the EU realized that this tranche of money that its member states really need can be basically frozen at discretion if they're not abiding by things like the rule of law. And last year, Poland was fined about a million euros a day by the European Court of Justice by a ruling of the court that essentially said that Poland is not abiding by the rule of law. And this amount of money essentially stacks. And this is all new ground for the EU that's just exploring what to do with some of its more troublesome members like Hungary and Poland. And so insofar as the EU is acting like a good influence and drawing in the countries that are bordering Russia, what do you think Russia makes of that bright spot that is focused on Putin's doorstep? Yeah, well, I can't read his mind, but I can't imagine he's too happy about it. Mr. Putin might have hoped that the invasion of Ukraine could slow the progress towards liberalization, greater alliance to the European Union, and general westernization, as he calls it. But in a lot of ways, he might have really kickstarted the opposite. I feel like a lot of people around Russia can't help but imagine that these images we're seeing of Russian draft dodgers fleeing the country and Russia trying to play around with its laws of war to keep justifying this, frankly, lawless invasion of Ukraine is really just an example of what a country that has really lost its way on the rule of law winds up doing. And I think countries around Russia are probably taking note and saying, okay, there's a lot of benefit to maybe hewing to the rule of law because the other world is really not a pretty picture. Hamza, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. In October, I was in the Canadian Rockies with my wife, watching the baseball on the one screen that wasn't tuned to ice hockey, and it was the Yankees versus the Astros. Philip Coggan is a longtime former columnist with The Economist, but now has a bit more time for travel. And suddenly a bearded guy put down his beer and said, Are you guys Yankees fans? And we went, no. So he walked over and shook our hands. And then a guy over the other side of the bar raised his beer and toasted, Anyone but the Yankees. And this was a lesson. There are a lot of people who hate the New York Yankees out there. So this dislike of the Yankees is really widespread, almost perhaps a national sport unto itself. Why do you reckon that is? There are two things that seem to mark out the sports teams you love to hate. The first is an incredible amount of success. And the Yankees have been in 40 World Series over the century, which is, you know, many more than any other team. They've won it many more times than any other team. And the second thing is it tends to be clubs in the big cities that get disliked because there's something about a big city that people in rural areas and smaller towns don't like. There's a kind of entitlement and arrogance about it. And you have had that from Yankees players over the time. They're the sort of people who date rock stars and get in all the tabloids. So, It's the success and the arrogance put together that makes them hated teams. And it's not just limited to baseball, this kind of hatred of the the big winner. 
Not at all. A lot of sports have this phenomenon. So in the English Premier League, it's Manchester United. No club in history has ever won the double twice. This was Manchester United's moment and one for the club's supporters to savour. Every possible seat was taken by people... The early years of the Premiership were dominated by Manchester United. They had 13 victories. last 10 years, none at all. So uh, there has been a shift. But they also had this young, glamorous team, David Beckham, Ryan Giggs and Eric Cantona. They had a kind of swagger about them that made a lot of non-Manchester United fans dislike them. In... American football, you had the Dallas Cowboys who called themselves America's team. How arrogant is that? And they were disliked for a long time. Uh, They haven't been quite as successful in recent years. The team that's dominated under Tom Brady was the New England Patriots. They've pretty much risen up the rankings to become the most hated teams by neutrals. So when you get a significant period of success, there are some advantages for the fans of that team, of course, because you've got that success, but everybody else starts to resent you. So it's It's all about envy then? Not all about envy, or at least not all about envy of success. So Bayern Munich are generally seen as the most hated team in Germany. They've won the last 10 titles in the Bundesliga. There's a song that the rival fans sing, which is goes, strip the lederhosen off the Bavarians, and it's sung to the tune of Yellow Submarine. That was fantastic. I was wanting to sing along, even though my German isn't very good. But there are other teams that have been uh, disliked recently. One's sponsored, one by Red Bull, one by SAP, uh, the German software giant. And people can resent those teams because they feel they've bought the success. There's a lot of things, especially in some of these more working class sports, where you support the team in the town you were raised. You know, however badly they've been doing, however little resources they have. And if some other team comes along and gets a you know huge donation from a billionaire, that tends to cause resentment. So did the fans of these hated teams mind? Isn't it sort of a a badge of honor to be hated if it's so strongly linked to success? Yes, I think if you've got all those titles, then who cares what the little people think after all? You know, you can bask in the the jerseys and the T-shirts of your star players. But it's interesting what happens to teams that were unsuccessful and then become successful. So a classic example is the Boston Red Sox. They failed to win a World Series after 1918, after they sold Babe Ruth, the greatest player in the history of the game, to the Yankees, of all people. And it wasn't until 2004 that they won another title. Since then, they've won four World Series this century. And now the Boston Red Sox are leaping up the charts as one of the more hated teams in baseball. And they're getting a bit of their own arrogance. But, you know, if you're a Red Sox fan, I think you'd probably swap the hate for the four titles after a long, long drought. Yeah, forgive me. I'm, I'm in the I'm in the Go Sox camp still. Me too. Philip, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of the Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.
Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow.